Hi, it's number 127, and today I have a Q&A episode for you. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, this is Danae. Thanks for tuning in. This week, I have a fun announcement for you, and we're going to do a Q&A episode. So the fun announcement is that I'm bringing back The Mental Unload. The Mental Unload is a program that I've ran a few times with troops of women, and it's been wildly successful. It's a 30-day program with a step-by-step approach to unpack everything that's going on in your brain. We're going to first work on bringing to our awareness everything that's weighing us down, all the parts of the mental load. And then we're going to talk about how to get rid of and let go of some of those things and how to delegate some of those things. Every time I run this program, I hear from so many women about how much lighter they feel after the fact. So get signed up, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash mental load. We're going to get started on October 8th and the program will run for 30 days. So if you're ready to clear your mind and lighten your mental load before the holidays start, join us. Go to simplefamilies.com forward slash mental load. It starts October 8th, so be sure to claim your spot as soon as possible. So for these Q&A episodes, I solicit questions on Instagram. So if you have questions, be sure you're following along Simple Families on Instagram. And every month I'll ask for questions there. So I'm taking those questions that you left for me and answering them here on the podcast today. Before we get started, here's a quick word from today's sponsor. Unless you're new to the podcast, you've probably heard me sing the praises of PrepDish. PrepDish is a meal planning service, and I'm always excited to find podcast sponsors that I truly believe and support and use myself. And PrepDish has been such an essential tool in simplifying the cooking and meal prep in our home. We've been using PrepDish for about four months. And here's how it works. They don't send you food or anything like that. They send you a PDF every week. And on that PDF, there's three parts. There's a list of the recipes and the ingredients, a prep day description, and a meal day description. So usually on about Thursday, I order my groceries online. So I sit down with a list of ingredients. I put those into my shopping cart and order them through my local grocery store delivery service. And then over the weekend, my husband and I work together to do the prep day. The prep day option for the standard option takes about an hour and a half. They also have a quick option that's faster. So on prep day, we make all the marinades, all the sauces. We do all the chopping. That way, when it comes time to actually serve the dish on the day of the meal, I only have to do maybe 10 minutes worth of work. The whole process is simple and seamless, and it has made our weekdays so much easier and so much lighter. Prep Dish is giving the Simple Families audience two weeks free. So try it. Let me know how it goes. I want to know if you love it as much as I do. You can go to prepdish.com forward slash families, and that's all lowercase. And there you can get your two weeks of free meal planning. Again, that's prepdish.com forward slash families. So on to the questions for today. So I want to clarify to everyone listening, if this is your first Q&A episode, I really answer these questions through my own lens, through what I would do personally. That doesn't mean that these are answers or ideas that are going to work for your family. So I hope that you take away what works for you and leave what doesn't. The first question this week comes from Allie, and she wrote, I'd love to hear opinions about Christmas gifts for kids. I have three small kids, ages two to nine, who don't really understand the delayed gratification of an experience. 
They don't get gifts from grandparents or other family members. We are the only gift givers. My husband and I can never decide where to draw the line on how many gifts to give them. So Allie, I'm not a huge gift giver when it comes to my kids, and that's not because I don't love them, and it's not because I don't love to see the joy on their face, because I absolutely do. I mean, what's better than having a kid light up when you give them a gift? Not only does it feel good to the kids that we're giving gifts to, but it also feels good to be the gift giver when we elicit that happiness out of our kids. It makes us feel good too. There's two main reasons I'm not really big on giving a lot of gifts to my kids, especially toys over the holidays or for birthdays or Valentine's Day or whatever it is. We give gifts all the time now to kids these days. I feel like every holiday or major occasion is marked with a gift, whether it's the birth of a sibling, the first day of kindergarten, the loss of a pet, Easter, you name it. Kids are getting gifts all the time. The first reason is I feel like when we give tangible gifts around special occasions that we're detracting from the real meaning of the occasion. It's really hard for a child to pay attention and to appreciate the celebration of life that occurs every year for your birthday if there's a gigantic pile of gifts that are wrapped up awaiting them. When birthdays come around, I really want that to be a time of celebrating life and celebrating the people that we love. I don't want it to be all about gifts. And I feel the same way for Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus being born. Or maybe it's just about family togetherness for you. But when we put a big emphasis on gifts, particularly when we give a lot of gifts, it's really hard for kids to see anything other than that. So by scaling back on the number of gifts and the importance that we're placing on tangible gifts for special occasions... We can help to teach our kids and to model for our kids the real reason for the season or for the celebration. Sure, it's possible to do both. It's possible to give your kid a ton of gifts and to also teach them about the value of the celebration. But like I said, it's hard because kids are very easily distracted by new things. Adults are very easily distracted by new shiny things. So if you're doing that, you just have to understand that more than likely, pretty quickly, the gifts are going to outweigh the importance of whatever the reason is that you're celebrating. The second reason that I don't really love to give a ton of gifts for my kids is that I like to be really intentional about the things that we're bringing into our home. And that means that I'm buying things that my kids need and things that help to support them as they learn and grow. So I don't view toys as frivolous things. I view the toys that we're buying and bringing into our home as things that are going to help them learn, things that are going to help their education. Now, I'm definitely not talking about buying a ton of educational toys because that's not what this is about. I'm talking about the fact that kids learn through play and every toy that they're playing with is teaching them and it's helping them learn and it's helping them grow in some kind of way. It's helping their imagination. It's helping their creativity So even if it's just a Superman figurine, yes, there's definitely opportunities for learning in that. By no means am I suggesting that you get rid of all of your kids' fun, playful, pretend play type toys and replace them with educational toys. Because the toys that give opportunities for unstructured free play are some of the most valuable toys that you can buy. Now that being said, I did just buy an educational toy for my son and I haven't bought an educational toy in a really long time. Mostly because I found myself going down this rabbit hole of justifying toy purchases because, oh, it's educational. And even educational toys could turn into clutter. But my son has just shown an interest in learning how to spell some basic words. 
and I got him what I guess you could call a toy, but it's sort of this alphabet to build words with. Now, I could have said, sure, his birthday is coming up in a month and a half. I'm just going to wait and give it to him for his birthday. But this is really part of his learning and part of his development, and I view it as part of his basic needs. I don't really think it needs to be made into this big special thing to give my kids something. If he needs it, if he uses it, if he's going to benefit from it and he's going to love it, it doesn't need to be his birthday or Christmas or any special day for that matter. And when the holidays come around, they don't feel less special because there's not a big pile of gifts. They feel more special because we get to emphasize different sorts of things, different sorts of things other than just the stuff. So again, that's my approach and that's my thoughts on the holidays and gift giving. And you might have totally different beliefs and that's completely okay. Okay, this next question is coming from Rebecca. And in response to a photo I posted on Instagram, it was actually a little mini video of my kids playing beautifully together. She wrote, man, your children are going to be the most calm, well-adjusted people on the planet. I struggle with keeping the TV off. My girls play nicely, but oh, how they love the TV. Paw Patrol is the absolute favorite. And I love it too, because it means no fights, no injuries, no interruptions, so I can actually have a peaceful, tidy, clean home and home-cooked food and feel sane myself. How do I get to where you are? It looks idyllic. So I first want to say that it's definitely not always idyllic at my house. My kids definitely do argue. They play nicely on that day that I took that video. They're playing nicely for about 30 minutes and then they started kicking each other's block towers over. So I'm going to explain to you the best tool that I have. And I need to write more about this because it's something that I do feel really strongly about and it's something, it's something that I found to be very useful at home. I use something called expansion and contraction. So throughout the day, our kids cycle back and forth between expansion and contraction. So when they're contracting, they're playing together, especially if you have two kids. Or they're playing closely on top of each other, working together. They're building a block tower. They're doing a puzzle together, something small in a closed, tight space. Now, when they're contracting for too long, they... S- they develop a need to expand. And when our kids need expansion, they need to be able to move apart and to move their bodies in big ways. They need to be able to play outside or even just go to their rooms and spread their wings and separate from each other for a little while. It is not anything punitive. They're not doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything wrong as a parent by having kids that get under each other's skin. This is a natural part of development. Kids especially when you have siblings, that relationship with each other is really forming the foundation and it's serving as a practice ground for future relationships. So all those conflicts and all those problems that they have, those are all really teaching them how to deal with relationships and how to manage relationships positively in the future. So you can rest easy that all that arguing and all that bickering is really serving a purpose, but that doesn't make it any less difficult to deal with on a daily basis. So that's why I use expansion and contraction. So I pay attention and notice when my kids start getting on top of each other and getting into each other's spaces and kicking over each other's block towers. And that's my cue to know they've been contracting. They've been too close, working together too tightly for too long. They need to expand. They need to spread their wings. They need to play freely. They need to go outside. They need to breathe. So the way I see my role is that I help to facilitate that. So when I see them getting on top of each other, I'll be like, all right, time to go outside. Or when I see that they're outside and they're running wild for too long, they'll be like, okay, why don't we all come together and work on something that's small or more focused? So I help my kids move back and forth between expansion and contraction. And that helps to balance the energy of the siblings throughout the day. Now, Rebecca, you mentioned screen time and that how you feel like using screen time really gives you those quiet times and it gives you the peace between siblings that you need. 
I don't think screen time is the devil. I don't think the kids need a lot of it either. What I do see happening is that when kids have contracted for too long, when they've been playing on top of each other, playing too closely, working together, and they need expansion, sometimes as parents, we take that cue as they need to settle down and sit quiet. Let's give them screen time. When a kid needs to move and to expand and we give them screen time, we're actually giving them the opposite of what their body needs. They need to move and we're having them sit down for long periods of time. So yes, screen time will make your kids sit still and be quiet, but often after the screen time is over, that pent up energy will come back in full force and it might even be stronger. If you have a kid who is really wound up after television, pay attention and see if this is happening. Pay attention and see, are you giving screen time when they actually need to be playing outside? Are you giving screen time when they're driving you crazy and they need to burn off energy? And if you are, that might be why you're seeing this aftermath of screen time being so intense. That energy gets really pent up. It's got to go somewhere. So in a nutshell, really tuning in and trying to pay attention to the energy of our kids can really help us to manage behaviors. The next question comes from Megan, and she wrote, Mealtimes. My daughter is a great eater, but we have to remind her a million times to sit so she won't tip her chair. And then once she finishes, before we always do, she pulls at my husband to come play with her. Like literally pulls his arm until he just gives up and leaves the table. How can we enforce boundaries when she's a very attention-demanding child, especially when my husband and I are trying to have an adult conversation? This is a great question, Megan. So I'm not a fan of saying no to kids all that often. And that's because I really like to reserve no for the important times, like when there's a safety risk involved. If my kid runs out into the road, I will yell, no, you can't run out into the road. And I think that if we overuse no and we say, no, stop that, don't do that, no, all day long, that our kids don't really hear us when we say it and they don't really understand the importance of it. Now, I do think that there is a time and a place for a good, firm use of the word no. So in this situation, I would probably use it. I would probably say no very firmly, and she might get it. Now, there are sort of two different responses. I have two very different kids, and I'll tell you how they respond to this. So my son, if I say no firmly to him like this, he literally falls apart. He would burst out into tears and be so upset. Not because I'm saying no and not permitting him to do something, but more because he feels bad and he feels like he's been disciplined and he feels like he did something wrong. He's just more sensitive in that way. So I am selective about when I use this firm tone of voice. And I do try to be generally more positive and gentle with him because he definitely responds better to it. Now, my daughter, on the other hand, I think responds better to a firm no I think she's only two and a half and it communicates very clearly what my expectations are. So I would encourage you to try this. A very firm and simple, no, you need to wait until we're done. You can be firm and still loving at the same time. Not everything that we say to our kids has to be in a sweet, charming manner. I do think there's a time and a place for them to know when we're serious about something. Now, On a similar note, I do want to say a few other things about having kids stay at the table. I don't require my kids to stay at the table for any certain amount of time for meals. That's because I realize that they're still young and they have a hard time engaging in conversation that usually keeps us at the table. So most of the time when adults stay at the table for a long time, it's because they're talking and they're catching up. 
Now, as my kids grow, I anticipate that they're going to want to be a part of that conversation and they're going to enjoy being at the table just as much as we enjoy having each other as adults. But I want to let them come to that in their own time. If I demand that they stay at the table or I use a TV show or an iPad to keep them at the table longer, they're going to be learning that the table isn't a place that you want to be. The table is a place that you need to be bribed to stay at. So in the meantime, I let them stay and I let them eat and then they can leave when they're free to leave. And as they get older, that time will increase slowly that they're staying with us at the table. That being said, I also don't let them disrupt the people who are still eating at the table. That means we don't get up to go play with them. We don't get up to get a game out for them. We don't get up to turn the TV on for them. If they decide to leave the table, they have to go play independently. And that's really the only option. And I think this is about having good, firm expectations. Now, when your husband said he's not going to leave the table and your daughter keeps tugging at his arm and pulling on him, he needs to set a firm boundary that says, no, this is not appropriate. I'm going to stay here. When we say no, we need to mean it and we need to stick by our answer. So I encourage you and your husband to try a firm no, a no that says we're not going to leave the table until we're ready to leave the table, but you're welcome to go and play if you'd like. The next question comes from Amy and it's also related to meals. So Amy wrote, I make a meal and give them a plate of options and let them choose, trying to steer away from pressure, etc. But if your kids want seconds of one thing, do you keep letting them have that until they're full or done? Or is this a, this is your plate of food and you have to eat it all before seconds type of thing? This is personal preference, Amy, but I let my kids eat as much of what they want of anything that I'm serving. If there's certain things that I don't want them to eat a lot of, like bread, then I just don't serve those things with a meal because I know if I offered them bread and vegetables and chicken that they would just eat all the bread. But generally speaking, I'm mostly serving a vegetable and a protein and they're allowed to eat as much as they want and fill up on any parts of the meal. I do that because I think that the nutritional needs of our kids vary by day to day. Like they might have eaten a ton of protein earlier in the day and not feel like eating any for dinner. Their bodies know what they need to a certain degree and I do want to trust that. So I don't want to force them to overeat on chicken when really their body is craving a lot of veggies. So I'm giving them some freedom while still putting limits into place. They're not allowed to eat something that's not being served for dinner, but at the same time, they can eat whatever they want of what we're having. So the next question comes from Melster Hope. I don't know what your first name is here, so I'm just going to use your Instagram name. So you asked, any tips on potty training? We've been using the oh crap book and method, but I find the process to be lasting much longer than expected. Our daughter turns three next month, and we've been trying to make the transition for three months. She does well at home, but it's been a challenge at daycare since they want her in pull-ups until she's fully trained. So it seems like she's taking steps backwards because of this. We don't use pull-ups at home, so she knows when she has to go to the bathroom, she goes there. Any thoughts, suggestions, or ideas? So I feel for you on this because really pull-ups do set you back, and that totally makes sense that your daughter's not making progress at daycare. This may be their policy, but if you could just explain it to them exactly how you explained it to me and how you feel like the pull-ups are really actually preventing her from being fully trained, I would hope that they could help to work around that. The potty training process can take a really long time. I do hear about these miracle kids who you train them in three days and they never have an accident, but I think those kids are few and far between. I think potty training is more kind of like the Montessorians call it toilet learning, and it's a learning process that takes 
quite a while for a lot of kids. So I think that taking a while is normal, but I do think that adding the pull-ups into the mix can complicate things for sure. One specific idea I think you could try is to put some training pants underneath the pull-up. If she has to wear the pull-up at daycare, that way she's feeling when she's wet because she feels the training pants rather than everything just being absorbed into the pull-up. So my first choice would be try to talk them into ditching the pull-ups. And my second choice would be to put training pants, not just underwear per se, training pants more so because training pants absorb more liquid and they're going to feel more of the wet experience close to them versus just a simple thin pair of underwear. Probably most of the liquid's just going to get sucked right up into the pull-up anyway. So it might not be as noticeable of an effect. This next question is from Madison and she wrote, have you seen minimalism and minimalist parenting differ in different regions of the country? I'd love to know how things are different in Texas versus New York and hear interviews with minimalist moms all over the country and or world. This is a great question, Madison. So we started our journey to minimalism in Texas, and now we live in New York. And I have to say that I do see some differences. We lived in Texas for five years, and what they say, everything's bigger in Texas, is absolutely true. Everything is bigger, including closet space and the accumulation of stuff. We loved living in Texas and still consider it to be home, and many of our very dear friends still live there. But I will say that I think that the way that Texans live very large, especially in Dallas, which is where we were living, really inspired us to live smaller. Another thing that I noticed there is that the culture of gifts is very strong, particularly hostess gifts and thank you gifts. Here in New York, if you go to a party, you bring a bottle of wine, but in Texas, you're bringing like a cutting board or serving utensils or a new set of cloth napkins. I'll never forget, I gave a thank you gift to one of my very sweet friends in Texas. And thank you gifts are a really big thing in Texas, more so than in other parts of the country that I've lived in. So because I learned while I was living in Texas that thank you gifts, like actual tangible gifts are important. I gave her a thank you gift and she gave me a thank you gift for giving her a thank you gift, which I had to laugh about because I felt like it was a very Southern Texas kind of thing to do. So Madison, I'm also interested in those differences in different parts of the country and different parts of the world, because I'm sure that the challenges and the obstacles are different. The next question comes from Amy and she said, how did you decide when your family is complete or will you try for another baby? This thought is on my mind probably a hundred times a day for my own family. So this is a, probably a very bizarre reason and realization, but this is how I realized that my family was complete. So I try to trust my gut on this sort of thing. Now, I think we can intellectualize and think about these things and weigh the pros and cons all day long, but I think in the end, our gut and our intuition are very strong about this kind of decision. So I always wanted a big family. I always wanted at least three or four kids until I was about 20 weeks pregnant with my second child. So we had gotten chickens in a month or two before that, and I had gone out. I was still learning how to take care of these chickens, and I was halfway through my pregnancy. We had five chickens, and I got really frustrated because I feel like everyone told me that chickens have their own personalities and that you get to know them and that they have so much character. And we'd had these chickens for a couple months, and I felt like I barely knew them. We had five of them. They just seemed like a flock of chickens. I didn't know one from the other. And I felt like I couldn't appreciate their individuality. So I had this sudden realization that I didn't want a flock of kids. I just wanted two so that I could really truly appreciate them and take them in for everything that they're worth. 
And now I said, this is bizarre because I know that chickens and children are entirely different. And I know that when you have five children, you absolutely do get to know them as individuals. But for me, this was the moment that it hit me that two was a good number for me and two worked for me. And I really haven't wavered on that at all since then. I also don't get those feelings of when I see a baby and I want another one. It just doesn't happen to me. And I think that's in part because my gut, my intuition is telling me, hey, you're done. You had that. You experienced it. It was wonderful. And now you're moving on to the next phase. So I think it's really about paying attention to your gut and your intuition and not trying to overthink it. I think that your gut is very rarely going to steer you in the wrong direction. Sometimes your gut might speak to you through chickens, but listen, it's probably making some sense. Okay, my last question is coming from Randy, and she wrote, based on this photo, thoughts of your children having a social media presence. I struggle with it being in their best interest long term, and my husband is not exactly for it, but it's becoming seemingly necessary for moms in the blogging realm and beyond. Some days I feel like I need to shelter them and that when they're older, they may get frustrated or annoyed with my decision. Other days, I feel like it could be helpful to others to share a peek into our lifestyle. So I try to find a balance with sharing about my kids. I try to share stories in ways that are going to be helpful to other people, but I never use my kids' names. And as much as possible, specifically when I'm posting on social media, I try to do pictures where their faces are obstructed. Now, sometimes I do post pictures of my kids' faces, and I'm not 100% against that. But I don't do it as often, and I hope that if my kids were ever out and about, that strangers wouldn't recognize them based on my Instagram feed or on my, or my social media. So for me, it's been about finding a balance. I don't use their names, and I try not to use a lot of full front face pictures. And in the future, and I know this time will come that they request that I don't talk about them or I don't post about them, then I'm 100% going to respect their opinion, and I'm probably going to have to find a new job. In the meantime, I'm trying to be respectful as possible, while at the same time realizing that sharing some of my experiences and some of my reflections in parenting really can be helpful to others out there. So that is going to wrap it up for today. I appreciate you tuning in. And if you're interested in signing up for the mental unload, if you want some clarity and some calm before the holiday season gets started, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash mental load. We get started on October 8th, so I'm excited to have you join us, and I'm excited to get to know you better there. As always, please take a second to leave a rating or review on iTunes. It's greatly appreciated. Have a good one.